Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning, everyone. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Joining me on the phone is Scott Wheeler, who's the owner and publisher of the Northland Journal and an awesome storyteller. Welcome, Scott. How are you? Good morning, Pat. Um, <laughs> I, I'm doing fine in the snowy northeast kingdom. I, even though I, I do think the uh, storm is going to once again miss us, and we're kind of like turning into the um, a tropical paradise up here now. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. We love the northeast kingdom. My ride-in was it was somewhat uh, eventful. I sort of uh, got stuck in the slush, so be careful out there because I managed to cross over two lanes without getting hit, which was good. Um, but anyway, um, Scott, let me tell our listeners a little bit about you. You were born and raised in Vermont's Northeast Kingdom, and from what I have read, you are an unstoppable on an unstoppable mission to preserve the history and culture of the Northeast Kingdom. So what is it about the Northeast Kingdom that makes you so passionate about sharing its stories with others? Well, um, there's, uh, for, well, first of all, some of, some of my ancestors have been here since the beginning of time. Mm. <laughs> um, but the, uh, I, I think they were probably here when the ice sheet pulled away, uh, <laughs> pushing it away. But, uh, other members, you know, but a lot of my ancestry <clears throat> is European and we were some of the earlier settlers to the region, which when I say region, I mean Northeast Kingdom and, and Southern, uh, Quebec. Oh, but so I've been here. I've been here for generations. We've we've been here for generations, and um, and also uh, the Northeast Kingdom. I I kind of roll my eyes about what I hear about the Northeast Kingdom. It it seems to go between two um, two uh, ways of thinking. We're either poverty stricken hillbillies <laughs> who. Uh, and and but on the other hand, there's the the quaint uh, the quaint stories of our 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 green village commons, the white steeples and the white picket fences. Uh, so in reality, we fall somewhere in between, just like the rest of the United States. Um, it's it's really no it, it's not that much difference. Um, it, it's it's really it's it's really not you uh, where uh, the Northeast Kingdom is what you want to make it. I like that. It's what you want to make it. That's a good explanation. Um, now you uh, publish your monthly magazine, uh, but you also host. Uh, I, I hope I have a weekly TV show on NEK TV called the Northeast Kingdom Voice. And do you also publish a, a radio show on WJJZ Country called the Vermont Voice? Anything else we miss there? Oh, you know, um, yeah, the, I've been doing those for years. Uh, I, I still get the same. Um, I'm, I've been uh, they they give me uh, they they double my they multiply my uh, pay every year for those shows, and that's really nice. Um, you know, I started out at zero dollars, and I've gotten doubled. Uh, they've doubled my pay every year. So, I, the, in other words, these are my voluntary jobs. To um, you know, my radio <laughs> and TV. 
Um, and it, it's just what I do for fun. I, it also serves, they also serve as a forum for me to, uh, help people to tell their stories in that forum. And, you know, their stories might actually be just stories of their lives, but then others of them are, you know, more stories about events that are coming up and such. Um, uh, those, those shows are very wide range. And while my, um, my journal, the North, the Northland Journal, which covers the Tri-County region that makes up the Northeast Kingdom, Orleans, Essex, and Caledonia counties, um, that focuses on the history of the region. Hmm. Uh, and in a, when possible, I actually like to sit down and talk to my history. In other words, oral history and record their stories. And, and I also have a whole host of writers who submit work now, and we also welcome people to share, the, uh, to write their own stories about growing up in the kingdom during an er- earlier time. <clears throat> oh, that is really great. Um, I didn't realize that, uh, you know, other people can uh, can kind of chime in because there's a lot of stories up there. Uh, my husband had access to a uh, a house right on, on the lake, um, and we would go up there, and I just love it up in the Northeast Kingdom. I know somehow or other it just all changes when you're up there, and I think it's an amazing, amazing place. Um, I'd like to take a few minutes to speaking of your background and you have um experienced a serious loss lately of your wife Penny who was co-publisher of the Vermont Northland Journal and you wrote seriously wrote the most amazing article entitled The Passing of My Wife could you tell us a little bit about Penny and her contributions to Vermont Northland Journal Well um my wife and I uh, we got married uh Pretty much right out of high school, we've been we were together. I believe it. We were eighteen and nineteen, and um, we uh, we got married soon after. And then soon after, we we decided to change our lives in a big way. Uh, so by the time we were twenty and twenty one, we were the parents to identical twins. <laughs> and uh, and then a few years later came our daughter, and uh, they're all. They're all grown up now. Uh, the boys, you know, this is amazing to think. I don't even know how this is possible. My boys are 37, and Nick and Kurt are 37, and Emily's 31. But to, to be realistic, until I look in the mirror and see myself, <laughs> also, Sorry. I still consider myself 35. And uh, isn't that amazing I, how that works? Yeah, because, you know, I look at my... Uh, you know, I look at my kids and say, well, first of all, thank God they got their mother's brains. That's that's one thing. I, I count my blessings for that every single day. Uh, but the thing is, is I don't, yeah, I don't know where where the time has flown. Right. Well, she was very active um, in the healthcare field, was she not? And uh, she was a pharmaceutical um, manager in the Northeast Kingdom, hematology, oncology in Newport. So she had a great career herself in addition to helping with um, the publication. My wife, uh, you know, uh, just, you know uh, my wife and I were the one of, one of those couples that you never saw separated. We did hmm. everything together. Right. And with, you know, it's funny. When I tell people we had an absolute wonderful marriage, 
people said, you didn't even argue? I said, who is that? Is because wonderful marriages actually are often strengthened by disagreement. It's how you choose to disagree, and it's what you do with that disagreement. And it's, it was with that disagreement, those disagreements, that we became just this, you know, this great couple. And uh, I will tell you, the journal would not be here today if it wasn't for her. My wife, um, she absolutely hated the spotlight, um, and um, she she wanted no part of it. Uh, she just she did all the be- behind the scenes work. But of course, me, I would promise at any of my speaking engagements, I would promise her that I would not put the spotlight on her. And I would keep that promise for about 30 seconds. <laughs> and nice. uh, because I just couldn't, I, I still can't not credit her because, you know, a lot of times, like I, over the years, I've been interviewed by many uh, reporters and they always want to focus on me. But to be real, is you can't focus on me without focusing on Penny because, <clears throat> you know, she truly was the uh, brains behind uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, we all had our, we both had our missions. And here's the deal is Penny, when Penny knew she was done, when we knew Penny was dying, <clears throat> instead of folks, in, instead of focusing on dying, she chose to focus on living. And we just, and she knew she was dying, but she wanted to live. She wanted to live out every day. So we traveled the country. We, uh, I was her co-pilot. We visited the kids. And we, we celebrated every day, and uh, I knew she was strong having grown up the youngest and the only daughter in a, out of a uh, family of woodsmen. But until she was dying, I don't think I fully understood the scope of it. And she, um, she also uh, uh, prepared me and the kids for her past. And, you know, uh, first of all, they, she trained me how to do the paperwork as good as she could. <laughs> and, and she also warned her children, our, our children, you got to take get care of dad because dad's not able to take care of himself. And it was kind of tongue in cheek. And, and I will say this in one last thing about her is um, right from the beginning, she was, she was always looking for love for me. Is as in she'd always she would give me little hints on who I might want to date and who I might not want to date. And the one thing she told me is, Scott, you need to date somebody and you need to marry somebody who's organized because <laughs> I have many highlights in my life. Organization is not one of them. That was <laughs> I can relate to this. She sounds wonderful. I met her. I think my memory just once uh I met her and um I still remember her and I think um you talked about and you wrote that Penny set an example of how to die with grace and dignity and gratitude and humor. What a wonderful legacy that is, Scott. It's just oh, amazing. So Oh good. no, she absolutely did. She she hot she raised the bar for me and uh and the thing is is she did not allow cancer to define her. Uh, most people did not even know she had cancer other than our family and close friends until I announced her passing. And that was uh, even before Penny was sick. 
we often said if one of us were to get sick like this, that we was we weren't going to make it into a uh, social media media drama series, and we didn't. Instead, we focused on on living, and she she lived and so that she lived and found happiness in every day oh. until she breathed her last breath. That that is just amazing, Scott. You're making me get all all shook up here. Um, she sounds like an amazing woman, Scott. Can you tell us a little bit about the Northland Journal? Um, how long you've been doing it, and uh, I know it's dedicated to sharing and preserving the history and heritage of the Northeast Kingdom. So, I hope you could um, shed some light on that. And what it is about the Northeast Kingdom that you obviously love so much. Well, um, first of all, the, the Northeast Kingdom, as I said, there's there's um, there's a, a it's you know to some people it's the land of poverty where uh, we are uh, poverty stricken hillbillies, but then there's others that you know other magazines that or other publications or other reporters will write about it in a way that I don't even recognize. They, they just simply focus in on this being like a, this mythical paradise <laughs> of white steepled churches and white picket fences. Um, and as I said, we fall somewhere in between, just like every community or every region USA. Um, as for the Northland Journal, um, it actually came, I, I used to be a reporter at the Chronicle, including with the famed Darren Perrin, oh. who is a local boy. And, um, and um, we, um, so I worked there, and when, uh, when the news was slow, I would be writing history, uh, history columns. And my one history column won me uh, an uh, award at the New England Press Association. It was about... Prohibition in the Northeast Kingdom because I knew my grandfather had gone to uh, had gone to prison uh, for prohibition violations and so um, I, I interviewed some people and and that ended up being a series about prohibition in the Northeast Kingdom which then ended up being my first book Rum Runners and Revenuers Prohibition in Vermont and um, so um, since. Um, so, so one thing led to another. Then, when I when I uh, left to uh, when I left the uh, the newspaper to go work in uh, no, uh, work in hospital public relations, which you know the money's really good, but my heart and soul mm. weren't in it, and I, mm. I felt like you know it, it just weren't my thing. Um, you know, it, it just didn't proved challenging enough, and it it didn't satisfy my inquiring mind. So I decided to, um, I asked 10 people, what do you think about start, us starting up a magazine, as in me, me, Penny and I starting up a magazine? And, you know, about 10 people, and, um, and all of them, nine out of 10 gave me a resounding, Basically, are you crazy? <laughs> and, but that lone person was my buddy Gary Kellogg, who used to run the utility up here. He thought it was an absolute great idea. So I, those nine people, 
they out, uh, they, um, I, Gary outvoted them with his single vote. And, and to tell you the truth, Gary and, uh, Penny and, uh, I used to sometimes laugh that there are times that we, you know, in the last now 21 years that we wanted to, we thank Gary up, uh, uh, up and down for supporting us and, for encouraging me, but there were times where we just wanted to um, make him disappear somewhere, as or or hold his head in the toilet for, <laughs> for convincing us to go. Because, in all honesty, if you know, it, unless you're Stephen King, you're you're probably not going to get rich writing. And the journal is no doubt. Uh, if if people think I'm sitting here with piles of cash. No, that's not that's that's not going to happen. Uh, but we had, you know, especially during COVID, COVID even took a hit on mm. on magazines. You know, paper prices went up, printers were shut down, and uh, Blanchard Litho, our printer, managed to keep us keep us afloat. But COVID were some tough days for us, and um, so it's been the. If it was about money, we would have long ago said, "Nope, this isn't uh, this isn't what we're looking for." But we have—you um, would not believe the amount of support we have gotten, the amount of letters that I literally—we have literally got from around the world. Oh wow! Uh, because well, it's because Northeast Kingdom residents don't just live here. You know, former residents live all around the world and um and they just you know and and then the other thing i hear all the time i interview people and a lot of times their family members will say to me i never knew that and uh, uh because sometimes interviewing people that don't really know you that well but they know you're from here they actually feel much more liberated telling a strange, a relative stranger their story than they do, uh, their own family, especially if they think they might cry. Because wow. I've interviewed dozens and dozens of World War II veterans and most of them are now gone. I've even interviewed the German veterans who moved here. But the one thing is a lot of these men and some women, but a lot of them combat men mm-hmm. uh, if if you looked at TV they came home with a swagger and they didn't have any PTSD oh they absolutely did um, and a lot of them will tell you I would say at least 50% of the combat veterans of World War II have actually cried to me mm. and they told me that was the best thing that ever happened to them because their generation of men were not expected to they they weren't allowed to show their feelings and the way coming back from war that was handled then if they wanted to talk about it they were actually told not to because it would upset them too much huh. and so um, the uh, and now I have been recording the stories of well I've recorded the stories of the of Korean War veterans but also Vietnam War veterans I've uh, Penny and I actually hosted a welcome home celebration for them quite a number of years ago. And um, so um, 
Yeah, that um, they, in the stories, they don't have to be these grand stories. It's like when I know somebody has a story to tell, is often when they tell me they don't have a story to tell, is some of those people have the best stories. They just don't think they're important. Like the people who grew up during the Great Depression, they have some remarkable stories of survival. Um, it, it, it's, it's amazing. And it's, here's the other thing. Some of the people who actually jump up and down and say they have a story to tell, oftentimes they might have a story to tell, but it's not nearly as interesting as some of the people who I learn about through word of mouth or their families contacting me. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I just, people, I have been, people have said you're, such a smart person. Well, I have high school report cards to prove they're not right. Um, and uh, the application came late for me until after I went back to college. But uh, it's it's not that I that it's not that I'm smart. It's that I know smart people, right. and I and it's it's I just love people, uh, and and people have stories to tell. And they uh, oftentimes, by the time they are, you know, they're living out their final chapter, a lot of them actually want to tell their stories. So I can't record everybody's story. So I encourage people to record your loved one's stories. Give them a tape recorder or or record your story because, um, you know, you have a lot to offer the world through those stories. That's, that's really, that's, I love this conversation, Scott, because it's just so true. Um, I know my parents were, um, they don't talk much about living through the depression at all. And dad was in the service and they don't, they just don't talk about it. And I, I think you're right. If they had a, an opportunity to share, I think they would have felt a whole lot better about things. So anyway, we have to take a uh, break, a hard break right now. This is uh, Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint, and I'm talking to Scott Wheeler, who's the owner and publisher of the Northland Journal, and we'll be right back. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. Welcome back. And I'm talking to Scott Wheeler, who's the owner and publisher of Northland Journal, former representative, which we'll talk about in a moment, and a well-known storyteller. Uh, Scott, I read in doing the research that you were quoted as saying that these are changing times in the kingdom and the mission of the journal is more important than ever. Can you explain your comment to us? Well, the... um, uh well, I think there's a change in time really in Vermont as a whole, both good and bad. But I think, uh, you know, and it's, it's both good and bad that we've, um, the Northeast Kingdom has been discovered. 
<laughs> and and not and quite honestly, some people thank me for that, and some people criticize me for that. Is because I have I, I have shared the story of the Northeast Kingdom, and um, and I think in part, uh, like I know that some people have moved here, or at least it was sparked by my right, and and you know I've been on national and actually international shows, so. So some people really credit me with introducing the world to the kingdom. And as I said, there's other people who would rather me put a sock in my mouth when it comes to talking about the kingdom. Yeah, leave it alone, Scott. Right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So then I guess why why is preserving the kingdom – of the history of the kingdom so important to you because everything I read of, about you and what you've done, it's all about preserving the kingdom's history. What What is it about the kingdom that really reached out to you? Well, the bottom line is I was born and raised here. Um, and to make a long story short, um, um, my, <clears throat> my father, who died on Christmas Day this last year, uh, so I lost my wife and my, oh my father. I'm and, sorry. But he, he was 88 years old. And, but I grew up and my, my father, one of his side gigs was, he was a, I used to call it, uh, he was kind of like the Vermont, uh, the, the Vermont version of George Sanford, Sanford <laughs> and son. As in, he was, I called it, I said he was a junk collector. Well, in reality, I even think I knew back then he wasn't a junk collector. He was a collector of all things antique. Hmm. And um, so I, you know, like going to the landfill was, you know, what was like him going to the Mall of America over in Minnesota. It's like he'd be scanning the landfill to see just <laughs> what exact treasures he could find. And so, in other words, I grew up in the world of history he also had his bottle picking friends, as in dump diggers. They'd go to old dumps, dig old, dig up and sell old bottles. Uh, so I was immersed in the history of the region. Um, but um, I also understood that the local people in this region or any region, the the older people are the. There's many of. When you record history, a lot of times only the history of the quote self the the uh, self anointed important people are often recorded. Um, I don't say I don't record those stories, but for the most part, these you know self anointed important people really aren't that important. They really don't have that many stories to tell. But it's the average person that really has some amazing stories mm-hmm. who have lived. These ordinary people often have lived extraordinary lives. So the Northeast Kingdom just seemed to fit for me because I'm from here. In reality, every region ought to have a Northland Journal um, because, well, or whatever for that region, because um, we need, you know, to better understand, to better understand things, we got to, where we are now, we've got to understand a bit of the past. Right. Like, for example, I, Gregory Sanford, former state archivist. Oh, loved him. Uh, he, he was fond of saying to legislators, 
basically anything you you are going to be exploring here during this biennium has already been explored before and you know maybe just a bit differently we we really don't uh you know oftentimes we try to reinvent the wheel uh and we you don't really need to reinvent the wheel maybe you need to improve the wheel but you don't need to reinvent the wheel and so um but no uh i really believe that every region um needs a northland journal now granted they're going to have to take you know a vow of poverty well, not really poverty. And, and I, I, I do have to give a shout out to all of my supporters, well, all of our supporters, all of my – I have the greatest little team working for me, too. They, they have been with me forever, and, I, uh, and they help it all happen. And, and the thing is – and then our advertisers, we couldn't do it without them. Uh, our sponsors, our readers, our stores, uh, this is not a one-person effort. Or used to be a two-person effort. It's it's just it's it's a passion. You've got to have a passion to do this. And don't, no, that's I, that's really great. And I adore Greg Sanford. I um, I've known him, knew him for years, and uh, he was very complimentary about you in an article that I read. He said that Greg said you have helped him over the years as he has helped you. Um, he's just so knowledgeable and such a a kind man, and I think he said um, he made other comments about your work as an investigator when you were writing Rum Runners and um, Revenuers, um, and he he talked about how proud he was of his local area, um, and he took action when he was interested in something. He found out about it and got her done. Um, I, I also read somewhere that you were grew up in Skunk Hollow along the banks of the Clyde River in Newport. And I, I think I told you, I actually had to look up Skunk Holler because it sounded like a moonshine destination. I had never heard that expression in Vermont, but it's for real. Um, yep. So what was growing up in Skunk Holler like? Well, it, it's funny. It's, to this day, it's a poor section of town, uh, of the city. Um, and people, it's... You know, I know to this day there's still people who look down on the people there. We grew up poor, but we grew up the working poor. Um, we had wonderful childhoods, and and the success that has come off of that street is amazing. Of course, my idea of success is not what what uh, what some people think. It's like my best man in my wedding, my brother's best man in the wedding. You know. Uh, uh, Dan, you know, his success is he works for the city of Newport. He has his own bait, bait shop. As he says, I'm living the dream. But <laughs> then there's of us, there's others. Well, I shouldn't say us because it's not me. I know we have at least two millionaires that grew up on that street. And, uh, but no matter what, most of us, most of us have experienced wild success in when it came to success, to how they view it. But my idea of success is not necessarily a wallet just loaded with money. Because if my, if, if you're going to measure success, my success on it, I'm a dismal failure. Uh, but. I don't think so, Scott. I think you have done more to bring, 
um, Vermont Alive to a lot of people. I was at an event at the Highland Arts Center the other night, said I was going to interview you, and all these people knew about you, knew about the Northland Journal. So it's, um, it's, you're out there. And, and you've obviously, we have to talk about you being a legislator. You obviously, uh, made your mark at the state house as well. Um, and I, and as far as any comment about you from Greg Sanford, I would like frame it or something. I love, I love him. Um, he's just an amazing treasure. Um, I want to talk about some of the books that you, um, wrote. Um, and where is my list? Here they are. Um, you are the author of six regional history books. Um, and it's obviously all about, um, let's see, the Clyde River, the Clyde River, um, the voice from the Lakeside community, Newport Centennial, Jay Peak, Booze in the Kingdom. That's a cool one. Um, and they're all very successful. I have uh, actually ordered them and I'm going to read them because yep. um, my husband um, spent a lot of time in the Northeast Kingdom when he yep. was uh, in the state police and he wanted us, to, when we got married, to move up there and uh, I said I could go as far as Newport, but that would be it because Newport's a cool city and I like it. Um, so tell us about your, your, your writing career a little bit, Scott, because um, you obviously do it in Northland Journal, but also books are a little bit different, uh, different writing skill and, and takes a, an idea and a lot of time. Well, actually, I ha- I've had several. I actually had seven books because on that list, I don't believe is uh, the book that I don't publish. I don't. I don't own the rights to it, and it's out of print. I believe is Rum Runners and Revenue is my first book. Uh, huh. Well, you know, what I do is I. I actually my my writing a book is what I do is I take a lot of the articles I've written over the years and kind of string them together hmm. and bring the history of the, you know, bring it to life a bit differently. Uh, and uh, when I write books particularly, but even in the journal, I back up a lot of things with newspaper articles of the time. It's like, you know, bring, it's like, um, it's, um, yeah, it just brings, articles can bring things back alive. And, oh, by the way, um, I mentioned my grandfather going to, uh, prison and and I often say I have never had a speeding ticket but I have often said if I commit some crime I don't want it to hurt anybody but I want it memorable <laughs> and well I finally found out why my grandfather went to prison and I thought it was really cool uh, and I think he got too much of a sentence he got like a year in prison but he was peddling moonshine but the way he was doing it was he was a small-town person. He was peddling moonshine in baby bottles with the nipples on it. And I actually found the article where it explained what he was doing. And, you know, I wished I had known him because I would have high-fived him. <laughs> Is that, that was like a cool idea. I have a grandfather who did the same thing, and we have, um, my mother took his still and made a lamp out of it, and we have the lamp, the moonshine slash lamp at our, at my sister's house, I believe, and, um, he was in it too, so I think all, all of us might have a little bit of, uh, uh, moonshine in our background. Scott, I, 
I saw an, an article while I was doing the research. We all know the Lindenville Diner, I'm sure. Anybody who's been up north. And it says Lindenville was described as a home to one of New England's biggest bootlegging gangs and a gathering spot for criminals. Who knew? Yeah. Well, you know, um, yeah, the, the, there was an article, uh, the Boston Transcript, uh, which um, did, did an article, and they said, and I don't know if they took some personal liberties with the uh, uh, with the facts, but they said per capita that had, I, I believe it was the highest number of people in federal prisons, uh, <laughs> the uh, Linden, but it wasn't, well, what it was is, when when bootleggers would, you know, when professionals, I mean, most of the people were, good, you know, like my grandfather, he wasn't a bad person. Most locals weren't. They were they were good people just doing what they had to do to make a little money. But there were big time people who came here, and they didn't. They often did not set up shop right near the border. Uh, they would uh, they'd be away from in hopes of being away from the roving uh, federal people, mm. uh, the federal border patrol, well, uh, precursor of the border patrol. Uh, Lindenville was one, and Barrie was another great place to bring, uh, like, a lot of the stuff that came through this section of the border, as an Orleans County section, uh, a lot of the, um, there was a lot of shipments that went to Barrie. Uh, and when I interviewed a couple people in Barrie about, uh, the uh, about the bootlegging days down there, these two people in their 90s introduced me to Grappa. Uh, uh-huh. I know that. I, what's that? I know Grappa. <laughs> yeah, and, and I can tell you, if you needed to take a rust, needed to take rust off of anything, I think their Grappa would have done it. And uh, yeah, so um, yeah, that uh, so a lot went there. A lot went to Lindenville. Well. They 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 served as just passing through. Uh, there was like depots uh, where it went through, and uh, the um, uh, the um, Lindenville made the news quite often because they would have turf wars between the local bootleggers and the the real big time bootleggers. That they they made the news quite a bit down there in the. The locals were getting kind of tired of it. <laughs> That's funny. I wonder if Cola Hudson knew all this, Scott. Okay. No, no. Cola, Cola certainly would. Um, yeah, he, he certainly would have uh, uh, known, those, I bet. You know, known those days well. I didn't know to ask him back in the day. We used to spend a lot of time up with Cola up in Lindenville um, and his uh, up at his land up there. And with Bear, Bear came to live with us um, after Cola passed away, his puppy dog. Uh, but anyway, uh, um, so you are working, if I've got this right, you're working on a, or your recent book is called Voices from an Evolving Community and the Newport Centennial. What is, um, what's that all about, Scott? Well, well, both of those are, because I grew up in Newport, um, I, um, I want, you know, I decided to record its story. Fortunately, we had Emily Nelson, who passed away, oh, maybe 10, 15 years ago. She did a great job at recording the facts and dates and history of the city uh, up until that point. 
or up until the 1960s. But what I have done is I've taken it and I've recorded the story of Newport more through the words of the people who lived it. And, you know, we all know Newport has been down on it. Uh, mm. Newport, Newport has had some hard times. Um, the, um, uh, but I, I see better days ahead because uh, the EB-5 scandal, which, um, you know, a whole city block was torn down. Now, we can argue whether that was a good thing or bad thing, because some people will actually say it's a good thing because those blocks were in bad shape. But because of the EB-5 scandal and, at the time, lack of really good city leadership, Mm-hmm. I think after the um, after the uh, scandal, I think I think it. We just lost all. Are we on? Donald, don't know what happened, but we lost power here in the studio. So, Scott, are you still on with us? Scott, okay. I, yep, I'll keep talking, Scott. I, I don't hear you back, so I don't know if you can hear us. I apologize for that. It must be the storm. Um, we've been talking with Scott uh, Wheeler, who is uh, a great storyteller and a preserver of the history in the Northeast Kingdom. He also served with me in the legislature representing um, Orleans, and that's where I first got to know Scott. Um, he's a wonderful man, as you can tell. Um, it's got a, a lot of heart and a lot of love for um, for the Northeast Kingdom. Uh, we used to go up um, uh, there to visit friends and uh, had a place to stay up there. We'd go up as often as we could. But Newport itself, he was just talking about the EB-5 scandal. I am sure it's going to come back stronger and better than ever because of the people. Lots of good restaurants, lots of good stores up there, and um good place to visit. Um, so uh, they're working real hard to try to get us back online. Um, we'll have to have Scott back because I've got a couple of pages of questions for Scott. Um, he's been in the, the media business for a long time. We didn't get a chance to talk to him about his two radio stations um, because he is a teller of stories. And um, I did look up Skunk Hollow. Is that a riot? I saw that and I said, where is Skunk Hollow? But it's right there on the Clyde River, so I gotta go check that out. Um, anyway, um, we hope we can get all this fixed because we have, um, another guest coming on who is Molly Mahar, who is the president of the Ski Vermont and Vermont Ski Association. She's coming up, um, at nine o'clock. And I hear music. That's a good sign. 
This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Uh, before I introduce my next guest, I want to put a shout out to Scott Wheeler. Uh, sorry that we had so much problem. Must be the snow out there. The whole studio went just dark. Uh, we will have you back on, Scott, because I've got more questions. Um, for those of you who uh, want to hear more from Scott, you got to check out um, his newspaper, the Northland Journals, and also he's on NEK TV on the Northeast Kingdom Voice and on WJJZ Country called the Vermont Voice. So thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Um, joining us now is Molly Mahar, speaking of snow, who's the president of Ski Vermont, of the Vermont Ski Association. Welcome, Molly. Uh, anyway, I, I don't know if Molly can hear me. We're going to try to get her back on the station here. Um, as you know, the association, you may not know this, we, they serve 20 alpine and 28 cross country member resorts and provide services, uh, in three major areas to the, all their members, government affairs, marketing and public affairs. Um, and Molly was going to talk about COVID. I have some relatives who, uh, who work up at Stowe and it was a struggle, um, during COVID, as I'm sure all of you folks know who love skiing. Um, I just, I love all our ski areas and, and they're trying so hard to be 24 seven, 365 days a year, um, places to go, whether it be cross country hikes or, um, Flea markets or whatever they've got going up on the ski areas. It's, and the lifts. I like just taking the ride up the lifts myself personally. I get a big kick out of that. I do not ski. I cross country, but don't ski. Um, and I wanted to ask Molly what, um, uh, the impact of winter sports that we've got here in Vermont on Vermont's economy. And she told me when we were talking, there are almost four million skiers and riders visiting Vermont, whether it be downhill or cross country. That's, that's a few people. And I bet they've got some serious impact on our economy. I know that, um, uh, we were talking about branding and marketing the ski areas and it always helps when they're skied outside of the state, like down in New York and New Hampshire, which makes people think, Hey, we go to Vermont, we go do some skiing. Um, because, um, it's beautiful up here and we need them to come here. Um, we have got so many magnificent ski areas in this state. It's, it's really incredible. We are very fortunate here. Um, and, uh, no, Molly was going to talk about the evolution of, of, uh, the industry itself, um, and that it's important for her organization, um, to stay flexible. And, um, is Molly on with us now? I'm here. Oh, hi. I hope you were listening. I just blabbed away. Um, but I, it's so exciting what you do. I have relatives that, uh, that work at, uh, uh, Sugarbush. And, uh, so they keep me advised about what is going on. But you have got a great job, Molly. I do have a great job. Always, 
Always uh, a, a good uh, subject to talk to pretty much anybody about in Vermont. So Absolutely. Well, yeah. I was just saying, and I, I learned that it's true from working in state government the many years, that when there's if there's no snow down in New Jersey and New York and New, ha- New Hampshire, it's sort of hard to get those people to come up here because they don't think about skiing. But today they got snow, so stay That's tuned. Right. This is a, a great... A great weather day for us to be having this conversation, for sure. Exactly, and um, uh, now you for my told power me difficulties. Sorry about that. We uh, we were our power was flickering here in oh. Montpelier, so hopefully well, that oh yeah, because we we just went blank. I had a I don't know if people heard me talking or not. I just kept gabbing, which is something fortunately I I can do. Um, <laughs> you told me that uh, I think I had sent you a note that there were twenty two or so cross-country resorts, but you changed that number to 28. So obviously, cross-country skiing is growing in Vermont. Actually, it's going a little bit the opposite direction. We really? had 30, and we're down to 28. Yeah, ah. we've had a couple of them close in the last couple of years for various reasons, but I think, you know, some of the weather challenges that we, we faced um, earlier this season obviously make it really tough for the cross-country areas because um, we just have a couple of those that are able to make snow like all of our, um, most of our alpine areas are able to make snow. So snowmaking is, makes a big difference for us these days. That's great. Well, the one thing I actually can do in the snow, I did years ago and not so much now, uh, but was cross-country. I'm I I never quite got the hang of the downhill thing, but my husband um, worked on the ski patrol in Bolton Valley, so um, he's got that down. But you (laughs) focus on three areas in your association, uh, government affairs, marketing, and public affairs. Could you talk about um, those three areas and and what you do for your members? I'm sure somehow the legislature is involved in here. (laughs) Um, Sure. Yes, they are. well, we have, so we've got, uh, 20 alpine and 28 cross country ski area members, and we're a, a nonprofit trade association for those ski areas. But we certainly have, you know, a customer facing side too, a skier and snowboarder facing side. So, you know, we're known as the, our real name is the Vermont Ski Areas Association, but we go as VSAA and also, um, Ski Vermont. Also, a lot of people know us that way, and that's, that's our website with some, we've got some great resources on our website. So, yeah. Yeah, we've got three main areas that we focus on, but, you know, that sort of has been shifting and changing. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but we serve our members um, primarily in government affairs. So that's, you know, monitoring bills of interest to the ski industry over in the state house, um, ranging from anywhere from environmental regulation to workforce development, labor issues, uh, unemployment insurance, economic development, tourism funding, it's sort of all rolled in there. We, we're interested in all of those things and, and more than that, actually. Um, and in fact, we're working with a few other organizations to organize Visitor Economy Day at the State House, which was formerly known as Tourism Day at the State mm. House. Um, that's coming up next week on March 22nd, and we'll have uh, many leaders from the tourism industry, including hospitality and outdoor rec, um, coming together to, to show the legislators um, how important the, the tourism sector really is to Vermont's economy. So we're excited about that. Um, you know, there's a lot of regulatory uh, permitting that goes into mm-hmm. uh, ski areas, running ski areas. Um, Act 250, you know, we, we need Act 250 permits for just about every project that we do. And then uh, the Agency of Natural Resource permits as well for water use, stormwater, dam regulations, you know, the list goes on. Um, 
so we maintain, you know, we try to maintain a, a great relationship with um, the Agency of Natural Resources, and we do host um, regular meetings for our members uh, with uh, the heads of the um, of ANR to, you know, talk through issues, and, and uh, we have a great relationship with them. And then communications, public affairs is definitely a, a um, an area of service uh, for the for the association, and you know there's really sort of two areas of that. There's the promotional PR piece of that, which is more focused out of state, trying to promote um, Vermont as a winter tourism destination, and uh, working with uh, writers and influencers, um, content creators, as we call them now, on on the internet. And then there's the public affairs side, which is really more how the industry is perceived um, in the state by both uh, the administration and legislators and skiers and the general public, you know, and and many know us as an economic driver, particularly in um, rural areas where many of the ski areas are located. So, um, and then the third area is is really marketing, you know, promoting Vermont. Um, mostly out of state, um, and we work with a number of different uh, marketing partners. Um, those include, you know, Crab- Cabot Creamery is really our oldest partner here mm. at Ski Vermont, um, Vermont Department of Tourism and Marketing, Burton, Rosignol. We work with a couple of the spirits companies, Bar Hill Gin, Mad River Distillers, and there are many others. Um, Darn-, Darn Tough Socks is one of our uh, partners, and Vermont Adaptive Sports, so promoting Vermont as a premier winter tourism destination. Um, we do a little bit of digital advertising. We've worked with uh, the Department of Tourism on some of their, you know, advertising as well. And then, um, you know, email marketing, social media, all that good stuff. So that's um, sort of mo- the three main buckets. Uh, most of our ski areas are, are really trying to be um, all-year-round resort areas. Um, do you help them with any of that work that they do? Like I know Sugarbush has its golf course um, and um, tries to keep folks busy all year. Yes, we certainly help them promote their summer activities as well, and they have been adding, you know, more and more of those as as the as time goes on. Uh, mountain biking has really mm-hmm. had a resurgence, and we've got several areas, you know, Killington, Okemo, Mount Snow, Bolton Valley, Sugarbush um, <clears throat> that are big into uh, mountain biking. And offer a nice compliment to, you know, all of the cross-country trails that we have for mountain biking here in the state. Um, so that that is an area of focus for us as well. Um, but we certainly concentrate a little bit more on hmm. on the winter season. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I I don't know whether you provided this number for me or where I got it, but it says <laughs> almost four million skiers and riders every year. That is staggering. Yeah, there's a lot of people that come here, and um, the majority of them come from out of state. And so, um, you know, that's uh, that's an important part of our market for us. And um, it it's really a a, a 1.6 billion dollar industry in the state, which which includes direct. Uh, spending by ski areas, but it wow. also includes ski area spending with their vendors and then ski area uh, employees certainly spending at their household level. So, you know, it really is a, a big chunk of our of our tourist economy, certainly. Um, and that's really why I tell people that don't ski and snowboard why they should care that Vermont has a good ski and snowboard season. And we're certainly really thrilled to see the turnaround in the weather, you know, this, this right. month. When, yeah. And how has it been overall this season? A um, little sketchy now and then? Because we've had one or two fairly decent um, snowfalls. 
Yeah, it's um, it's been, I would say, one of the more challenging weather seasons mm. in recent memory um, until we hit this month, of course. Um, we got a pretty close to normal start, I would say, maybe a delay of a week or so for a handful of resorts, but we had... We had about nine or ten areas open for the Thanksgiving weekend, which is kind of the typical season, you know, startup scenario for us. And then, you know, Killington was able to host the Women's World Cup race that weekend, uh, Thanksgiving weekend. And that's a really important race um, to just showcase Vermont to the world. And also, um, it has a big economic impact in the region, you know, sort of right at the end of stick season, if if you will. Um, it brings about $6 million in, into the, the local economy down there. So, and Killington and their their crew does a great job hosting that race. It's um, it's really exciting to see some of the you know the best not yes yeah, some of the best women racers in the world um, racing right here in Vermont. Um, so anyway, we were happy that they were able to pull that off because it was looking a little you know it was a little warm before that race and. Um, but, you know, they, the Killington snowmakers were able to get that done. And then, uh, we did have some nice, a nice big snowfall in December before the holidays. And that kind of set us up well for the Christmas New Year's break, which is obviously an important one for the ski areas. And then we had sort of a warm spell, if you'll recall, right nice, after the holidays, nice. a sort of an extended one, um, which usually we get a January thaw, but it's not usually that long. Um, and then we, you know, we had a decent, I would say, end of January, um, and then, you know, we had another warm-up at the beginning of February, and then sort of things started to turn around. And I will say the last two years, March has been really disappointing um, because typically it's a really snowy month for us, so um, we're really glad to see that this year it is uh, living up to its snowy reputation. So, um, But I've been hearing demand has been great, especially over, you know, those, those critical holiday periods. Yep. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I think, I think we're on track to have a decent season, but, you know, we, after, you know, we had a couple of years that were fairly low visitation be- because of COVID, of course, right. we get the majority of our skiers, like I said, from out of state. And so when we had those, you know, the quarantine restrictions, it was really difficult for people to get here to ski, um, and we haven't quite bounced back from that yet, but I think it's not due to COVID. It's more due to, you know, weather conditions that right. we've, we've had to deal with. So yeah. we'll see where we end up, but we're, cool. we're having a good, a good march right Excellent. now. Excellent. So. Good to hear, Molly. Uh, we have to take a quick break right now. Uh, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Hi there. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. And I'm here with Molly Mahar, who's the president of the Vermont Ski Association. Molly, thanks uh, for joining us. I didn't get a chance to say that in the beginning because of a uh, little blackout here in the studio. So, <laughs> thanks I, for having me on. Exactly. We had a little struggle getting you here, and now now we shut the power off. How cool! Um, <laughs> but anyway, I just keep talking. There you go. Um, so it sounds like things are. Pretty okay this season. Maybe not as great as we would like it, but um, what's the, what's the rest of the season look like for you? Well, I think you know we're set up for a really strong finish here, especially um, because it is. I mean, it's obviously snowing across the state. We already had a foot on the ground at some of the areas down south this morning. And uh, importantly, they're getting snow down in our major market areas right. like Massachusetts, Boston, um, and uh, down near New York City. So that's really important because uh, we don't want them breaking their bikes and their 
their golf clubs out quite yet. We want them to keep thinking <laughs> Come about north, skiing. My man. <laughs> exactly. And so we're really we're really happy and um, you know, kind of a little relieved that it started snowing at the beginning of March because we still had the whole month of March really to capitalize on and you know, March um is, is definitely my favorite time to ski in Vermont and it it is for many people. It's a strong. It can be a strong month for us, and so, you know, we're hoping that we can uh, catch up a little bit with yeah. this with this month. And you know, ski areas are planning to stay open. You know, some of them will be shutting down later this month, but um, many will stay open into you know the middle of April. And you know, usually at uh, there's a handful that try to stay open to May and even into June. So I was, I was just laughing because I remember. I don't remember how many years ago it was, but some of them were open and people were skiing with their t-shirts on oh yeah that, that was well, it just made me laugh yeah often you know we we end up closing with you know a lot of terrain open i mean right now we've got the best skiing conditions that we've had all season oh, um i was able to take a couple days last week and and ski uh, at a couple of our member areas and you know the skiing is just phenomenal right now and you know with this new snow um, that'll that'll keep the stoke going. So we're excited about that. That's great. So I, you were quoted in doing some research that you said the industry, ski industry, is constantly evolving, and it's important for Ski Vermont to be able to evolve too. Could you explain what that means? How is it changing, and and what are you doing to to keep up with it all? Sure. Um, well, we talked earlier about our three sort of main areas of focus, but we've also been working in some new spaces as well to assist our members. And so we, you know, we just keep, uh, you know, an eye on the landscape and, and what our ski areas are, are having to, to um, <clears throat> deal with, with new issues coming down. Like workforce development, you know, workforce has been an issue for um, all businesses and the ski industry is no exception to that. And, you know, during uh, the pandemic, we did have some, you know, we do employ uh, some of the international students um, that are here on, on um, J-1 visas mm. and then also some of the H-2B, the, the more professional um, workers <clears throat> from overseas. And, you know, that's an important complement to our workforce because, you know, because of the ski areas being located in rural areas, it's tough for them to recruit enough help. So it's really been more of a, um, you know, a solution for them over the past decade. And, you know, we uh, we had trouble getting um, enough of those folks you know, during the pandemic, but we've we've um, been more successful. Although, because of you know the demand on workforce across all businesses, there's a lot more demand on on that workforce as well. So there's you know there's um, there's really not enough to go around. So we have to be really aggressive when we're we're trying to to get our numbers of those um, employees to come to the state. So you know, workforce development. I mentioned um, you know we have. Uh, we work with the Department of Labor on a tramway technician, mm. also known as lift maintenance um, technician uh, uh, apprentice program. So it's a three-year program, sort of similar to, um, you know, if you were going to become an electrician or a plumber, although they're not licensed, but, you know, it's a three-year, it, it's basically a three-year program where you work under, you know, a qualified person at a ski area. And then we, at Ski Vermont, we um, administer the classes. So there's three years of classes that we usually do, like May to early September, 
Um, and we have folks that, you know, work in uh, list maintenance at our at our member areas, um, cool. teach those classes. So, you know, that's a really critical uh, skill set that we need to run our ski areas. So we're making sure that, you know, that program stays um, sustainable and um, in place. And um, we've also worked with uh, the state colleges, um, particularly NVU. They have a, a ski area management program. Um, and then Castleton State also has um, a, um, a hospitality management school with Killington. Um, so, you know, that's a really critical pipeline to bring managers and folks nice. into our business as well. So we want to make sure that those um, stay strong. So um, sustainability and I would say diversity and inclusion, those are some areas that are that are sort of new. Um, sustainability, not so much, but, you know, the diversity and inclusion, I think, um, over the past few years, we started working on that back in 2019, I think it was. Um, and we have a long way to go in that area, but, you know, it's important for um, for both our workforce and, you know, participants of the sport. And as you're talking, I'm realizing how how much the ski industry impacts Vermont. I mean, the restaurants, um, just all over. I mean, there's, there's something there for everybody. So, um, that's right. really great what you're doing. I know you also help, uh, journalists and writers, um, uh, digital influencers. I love that name. Um, <laughs> to tell the story of, of what you call winter in its original state. I love that phrase. I actually have, we have a large poster that I think comes from your store that, um, it's a ski lift, uh, beautiful orange colors and it's, uh, it's in yeah. our TV room and it says on the bottom, um, winter in its original state. That's such a great saying. You, you, you blanked out there for a minute. But oh, I was I just saying that winter saying, in its yeah. original <laughs> state is just perfect. Yeah, I mean, we're really the, you know, the beginning of, of skiing here in the state. There are a lot of firsts here yep. in Vermont and, you know, it's, it's an important part of our heritage and our, our culture here. And winter is, is really important here. So, you know, you were asking me about, you know, our work with journalists and writers. That's yep. really sort of, um, you know, marketing is changing so much these days that, um, you know, the, the promotional PR aspect of what we do, um, is really a, an important part of our promotional strategy. So we really work uh, hard to cultivate relationships with um, media content creators and influencers, both those who are familiar with Vermont and snow sports and those who aren't. Um, And in fact, we've been really focusing on reaching and working with um, media and influencers from historically marginalized communities um, who are interested in trying snow sports so that they can share their experiences in Vermont and, you know, trying snow sports with their audiences. And we find, um, you know, that's a great way to get the word out about Vermont when, you know, they're when people are hearing about it from somebody that they follow and they, you know, they trust cool. their opinion. So, yeah. That's great. Well, I hear the music in the background, Molly, which means we have to take a break. Uh, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, and we'll be right back to talk more about skiing in Vermont. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, Hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? 
Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, and joining me is Molly Mahar, who is the president of the Vermont Ski Association, and we're talking about all of our ski resorts and cross-country resorts and all the fun you can have in the snow. Um, I also need to ask you, Molly, you must have seen Michaela Schifrin down in Killington. What a treat. Yeah, she is she is really phenomenal and we were so thrilled to see her set that new record for career World Cup wins over the weekend. Um certainly an exciting high point of her career and she I think she just turned 28 if oh. I'm not mistaken. So She's got a few years ahead of her, and um, I'm sure she'll continue to do great things. But, yeah, we mentioned um, <clears throat> that Killington hosts the Women's World right. Cup racing over the weekend of, of Thanksgiving. Um, it's a great kickoff to the ski season, and, you know, it really was a treat to see uh, Michaela race there. Um, along with her other teammates, um, who several of those uh, folks have Vermont ties, like Paula Moltzan and Nina O'Brien. Nice. Um, so it's, it's always great to see them uh, race there. And like I said, Killington does just a phenomenal job handling. That's the, they get the biggest uh, spectator crowd on the whole World Cup tour, um, Women's World Cup tour at that race. So I always say job. about skiing, I'm I don't ski, but. I know good skiing when I see it. You don't have to be a rocket science. You just watch <laughs> Michaela and you're like, oh, she is good. She's yeah, great. And she attended smooth. Burke she Mountain Academy. Look- did she, she not? She did, yeah. yeah. Yep, she did. So she, she went to school and trained here in Vermont. And, um, so we're really, we're really proud of that. One of our, you know, premier race academies here in the state. And, um, again, gives us great, nice. great, um, Great promotion it's there. Always, yeah, it's always good to see good or great in her, <laughs> in her case. So on your website, you've got this thing re- referred to as the mountain ethics. And you talk about uh, working landscapes, about what you're trying to do to um, make sure they're enduring and sustainable. And you have an ambitious energy conservation program, wildlife habitat enhancements and and championing local foods. There's a lot to talk about in that one paragraph. Could you uh, take a stab at it for us? There is a lot to talk about. I could probably talk for the next hour on <laughs> this right alone, <laughs> but I'll try to uh, to shorten it up here. Um, <clears throat> yeah, we certainly, you know, the ski areas are part of Vermont's working landscape, and we like to, um, you know, we're stewards of that land. The managers take this responsibility very seriously. Um you know, we spend millions of dollars in planning and permitting to accomplish this, um, really to support the state's recreation economy. And, you know, outdoor recreation is a really important gateway for many people to come to understand, both Vermonters and, and visitors, to come to understand the importance of our environment and why, she, why we should care about it. And so, you know, skiers come to the mountains, obviously, for the skiing and recreation opportunities but also to experience the mountain environment. So it's really important that we, you know, care for that mountain environment properly. And, um, you know, ski areas exist on uh, really a combination of privately owned land, state lands, federal lands. So there's quite a bit of oversight in terms of our operations um, in addition to um, Act 250 and some of the um, Agency of Natural Resource permits that we talked about 
uh, earlier. And so, you know, those really guide, um, you know, the management of the areas in a way that, you know, promotes uh, permanent conservation of land as well as, um, you know, making sure that we're operating in, in a way that supports the lands and the wildlife resources that we want to want to protect so that they can thrive. It's a, it's a really important mm-hmm. part of our business. And we have, you know, people dedicated at the ski areas that do, you know, they pay attention to, to just that, like that's their job. That's what they do all the time. Wow. That's so, great. Yeah. And just really quickly, you know, we do here at the association, we support the working lands enterprise um, grants as well. We actually didn't do it this year because we kind of got off kilter with our timing due to COVID mm-hmm. hangover. But um, we like to, um, we typically um, do like a $15,000 grant that goes through the Agency of Agriculture, through that Working Lands Program um, to support, you know, a farm or mm-hmm. a forest business because, you know, that's important to us um, supporting, you know, others uh, on that working landscape too. Well, you've got something that you call Ski Vermont Specialty Food Tour. That got my attention. What is that? I like food. Sure. Um, well, we, as I mentioned, we have a number of partners that we work with, and this kind of grew out of our partnership with Cabot. Cabot oh. is our oldest partner, as I think I mentioned earlier, Cabot Creamery. And, you know, as Roberta McDonald from Cabot, you know, longtime uh, Cabot VP of marketing used to say, lobbing cheese at skiers, right? So um, <laughs> we kind of created this program uh, that we call the Specialty Food Tour that, you know, we work with our partners like Cabot, um, Bar Hill Gin, Mad River Distillers, Woodchuck Cider, um, <clears throat> Day Chase. Day Chaser Seltzers and Long Trail Brewing and others. But then we also uh, include some smaller vendors like Vermont Barrel-Aged Hot Sauce, um, Vermont uh, Chaga Chai, um, Kelly's Canine Cookies, 802 mm. Heat Hot Sauce. And so we have sort of like a... Um, you know, it's we kind of take our farmers market on the road, if you will, and we visit about 15 different ski areas um, throughout the. Usually starts uh, towards the end of January and goes into March, and we have a couple coming up. Um, I think we've got Sugarbush, and I think we're at Stratton on Friday and Sugarbush on Saturday, if I have my dates correct. So we've got two more, and then we we had a couple we had to reschedule, so we're we're hoping to reschedule those for a little bit later. But it's a great way to um, help showcase what's special about Vermont, some of these small food producers, and introduce them or introduce our skiers and snowboarders to some of these companies, um, sort of that's how Cabot kind of got its start, right, is mm-hmm. um, having skiers try their cheese, and then as they grew their distribution, um, skiers, you know, love the cheese, obviously, because who doesn't love Cabot cheese, right? And um, sure. they look for it in their local grocery store. So um, so it's a great program, and the skiers love it, ski, the skiers love it, um, and the you know the food producers um, can can sample and and sell some of their products, Excellent. so it it's kind of a win win win. Absolutely, I just love that. I love anything that says like farm to plate or, you know, yeah. I mean, you go to a restaurant and it says the eggs comes from Joe's farm down the road. I just for some reason it all tastes better. Um, right, uh, it's just well, amazing. it's good to know that you're the supporting you know local farmers oh, and local for sure. companies too. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, and um, I I just love the whole idea. Um, I have to share. I have a little note here about how do you get Vermont kids on snow, and and to talk about your fifth grade passport program. My husband was the head of the ski patrol at Bolton Valley, and he come home laughing sometimes at the kids. They were these <laughs> little short people with 
the it, like three balls the the helmet the the all the padding around the the chest and everything and then the legs and he he just would crack they'd fall and roll a little bit and get up and they'd be I'll fine so yep. h- how do you get them involved and i love this fifth grade passport program if you could talk about that sure um well you know if you're a kid growing up in vermont you should definitely have the opportunity to try skiing and snowboarding. Um, you know, it's a long winter here in Vermont, and it's important for kids to spend out, spend time outside during the winter. So ski areas host um, many local and regional schools for multi-week prog- school programs during the season at low or no cost to them. And that results in getting, you know, thousands of Vermont kids on the slopes each year. So, um, you know, and all of our ski areas have those, those local school programs. And um, it's a great way for kids to duck out of school for an afternoon and get out on the mountain and get some fresh air and, and try their hand at skiing and snowboarding. And that's how many of them learn how to ski and snowboard. We also have the, as you mentioned, the fifth grade passport program. And that is open to all fifth graders. You don't necessarily have to be from Vermont, but mm. certainly Vermont fifth graders or, or from out of state. Um, and $20 gets uh, your fifth grader um, uh, access to three lift ticket vouchers to each of our participating alpine ski areas. Um, so you can, you know, if you're a fifth grader, you can visit um, the same ski area three times and um, passport uh, students must be accom- uh, accompanied by a ticket or a pass holding adult is, is the only catch there. Um, but a lot of families take advantage of that and, and uh, you know, are able to ski around ski different ski areas. So it's a, it's a great program, and uh, it is still on sale. Actually, it's a mm. it's you know like I said a low cost uh, twenty dollars. So even if you get out a couple times, it more than pays for, for itself. Sure. And uh, yeah, we'll have that on sale for another couple weeks. Probably. And at that so, age, kids yeah. just learn; they're fearless. They don't. They're not like somebody my age trying to learn would be <laughs> just a challenge. <laughs> I couldn't well, you even can think learn, about it. Learn as an adult, but yeah, uh, kids are fearless, and yes. and um, you know they learn really quickly, and yep. it's great to see them out there. And according to my husband, they bounce back with all these stuff they've gone on, so they don't get That's hurt; right. they just bounce. Um, That's right. Which is, he worked in Bolton, and on the the bottom of the uh, by eighty nine, there's the Smiley School uh, yep. Grammar School, and they would bring the kids up, and that would just yep. make his day. He'd come home with the biggest smile after watching those kids. So <laughs> it's it's great because they just they just want to ski. They don't think you can get hurt or anything can happen bad. You just go out and ski. Um, so. Um, I have a, there is a discussion about diversity in snow sports and is, is the industry, how is it bringing more diversity into snow sports and, and participation? What, what are you doing to it to attract diversity? Sure, that's a, a great question. Um, and we, you know, have a long way to go on, on that. Certainly, you know, Vermont, although we have, um, you know, doubled our, um, our population of, um, of um, BIPOC folks uh, from the last census, as I understand it, but we still have, um, you know, a, it's a very small minority of, of our folks here in Vermont, not so in many of our larger markets, right? They're much more mm-hmm. diverse. So um, it's important for us um, to to really, 
you know, we love the mountains and we love the snow sports and um, it's important for everybody to really be welcomed into that right. and, and have that accessible to everyone. You know, it's not only the right thing to do, but it certainly makes a lot of business sense too. I mean, if there's a substantial opportunity to bring new people right. into the sports and to the mountains, why wouldn't we want to do that, right? Um, and it also will help us with our workforce too. I mean, that's another area that we're really trying to diversify our workforce um, and Many people who are involved in the ski industry got into it through love of the sports and the mountains. So, you know, if we think about growing our participation in the sport and, you know, fostering that love of the mountain lifestyle, um, it'll help us to, to grow our business and help us to diversify our staffing as well. And, you know, there are a number of studies that say a more diverse staff um, of a business really creates a, a stronger business and better business outcomes. So, um well, and like been, I said, we have a long way to go, and many of our resorts work with different groups uh, to support, you know, getting folks to the mountains, um, and we're just trying to do a better job of understanding what those barriers are and great. and hopefully making them go away. Good for yeah. you. I couldn't agree more. And uh, Molly, on, um, on your website, you've got a lot of resources that people can tap into um, for things like how to plan your trip, condition information. Mountain mountain safety, which I'd like to talk about, and the skills to beat the chills. We could talk about that too, um, and then something that's called uphill travel at Vermont ski areas. So, could you maybe talk about mountain safety? What's on that uh, on your website that we all should know about? Sure. Um, mountain safety is a, a really important thing, and we were talking earlier about getting kids involved, and mm. kids often are fearless. <laughs> So it's important to teach them sort of the rules of the road, if you will, um, in terms of safety and, and not just kids, obviously anybody who's skiing, you know, there are inherent risks in um, skiing and snowboarding. So it's important to um, really uh, know the what we call the Your Responsibility Code, which is something that the National Ski Areas Association came up with. And it's been around for a number of years. It actually uh, got a refresh this year. Um, so it includes things like uh, always stay in control and be able to stop and avoid objects or other people. Um, people downhill or ahead of you have the right of way, and you're always, you always want to look first before you merge onto a trail, sort of like driving, like you mm -hmm. wouldn't just merge mm -hmm. onto a road without looking first. Um, and we want people to pay attention to, um, you know, reading and obeying all the signs, you know, know how to ride the lifts or ask for help. Um, and keeping out of closed areas and off closed trails. And, and there's a few more um, that were added this year. And you can see the full list at SkiVermont.com. We also have some other resources on there talking about, you know, skiing with um, with helmets and how those can help keep you safer. Um, and then also uh, some some great uh, video um, assets as well about, you know, avoiding collisions and, and just ways to stay safe because, you know, if we all sort of follow that your responsibility code, we'll all have a safer day on the mountain. So it's, it is really important. So Molly, um, the helmets are not mandatory. They are, vol they're voluntary. That is right. Um, huh. Yep. And most of the time, you know, I ski quite a bit, and I would say the vast majority of people that I see, it's well over 90% um, wear helmets yeah, now. I... And it's been sort of a changing thing, right? Back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't that way, and people have really been adopting them. 
It just makes sense to me because how many times do you hear these horrible stories of people hitting a tree um, and it doesn't end well and it's just horrible. I mean, it seemed to me the helmet is a good thing. Uh, I, yeah, I just I, mean, I thought it was the totally law for some you, reason. but it's yeah. it's certainly helpful and and you know it's it's important when you know you've got folks um, that are in you know ski instructors and right. patrollers sort of model modeling that that good behavior in terms of you know wearing a helmet um, it, it is important and it, it certainly can help you yeah. Um, and then, you know, we do have some other resources, as you mentioned, um, the skills to beat the chills, you know, skiing when it's really cold out, which hopefully we don't have too much of the really, really cold weather in March anymore. But, you know, we did have that cold snap back um, on the weekend or a few uh, weeks ago. And, you know, we like to roll that out. Oh, I'm, Molly was talking about um, the skills to beat the chills. We've lost her for a moment. I hope we get her back because um, that below zero stuff kind of gets my attention. I also don't still understand the impact of wind chill factor. If they say wind chill factor is X below, it's X below. It it um, it gets cold out there. Um, but I hope you you check their website because they really do have an excellent website. And um, um, it's really great. I also wanted to talk to Molly about the Ski Vermont store, which is uh, something that they have. And they've got a lot of vintage-inspired posters, as I was talking about. We've got one in our TV room, and um, I love it. It's the brightest colors, and it really helps perk up the room. And I, I just love the winter in its original state. That's Vermont. And Molly mentioned it. We started, I think we were the first to have lifts, if I'm not mistaken, and maybe um, maybe when we get her back on, which we might be doing that right now, um, she can confirm that for us because I think Cochran's had something to do with that. Um, and we also, I wanted to talk about there is a train, an Amtrak that used to run from Union Station to St. Albans to bring up the skiers from New York, and I think that's still going on. Um, um, what a great what a great trip that would be. Um, is Molly on the phone? I'm back. Can you oh, hear me? Thank you. I have to keep talking. It's so, so yeah, I, we, um, we we lost power in Montpelier. <laughs> oh, we do. Oh, great. So. You know, I was just listening to Steve Cormier doing the 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 road closures. I think people, unless you're going to ski, you should maybe think about staying home um, <laughs> because it doesn't yeah. sound. I actually had trouble getting in here this morning. I got caught in the slush on 89 and got uh, mm. dragged around and across to the other lane. Unfortunately for Uh-oh. me, no one no one was coming. So. <laughs> That's good. That was yeah, a good thing. Take it um, slow out there. Yeah. So I was talking about, I don't know if you heard me, but I was talking about the, the train, the, the Amtrak train. Is that still going on from Union Station to St. Albans? Um, there is a train. They actually extended the Ethan Allen uh, ah. service, which is uh, over on the west side of the mm-hmm. um, state. Uh, it used to go to Rutland and end there. From, so it would go from Penn Station to Rutland, and now it extends up to Burlington, mm-hmm. and it's been really popular. People have, um, you know, ridership is is up, and I will say we actually uh, did a, a media event down in New York City, and uh, um, myself and, and a couple of our staffers um, rode the train down, and it was great. I mean, you know, it takes a while to get there, but you can work, and it's 
comfortable and and it's it's a beautiful ride so i would highly recommend it and uh, it's a great way for skiers to get up to vermont as well one of the challenges um i think is just kind of figuring out the ground tra- ground transportation once you get here right. um but you know the ski areas are, are working on that i know killington had that down um pretty well and i think it got discontinued but i think they'll probably be bringing it back because it really is a great way to get out of the city and, and up to the mountain. Yeah, because there's not much skiing in Burlington last time I looked. So they've, no. they've got to come a little no. east there. Um, so on That's this, right. uh, on your website, we were talking about the, the skills to beat the chills. Um, but, um, we're going to have to close in a couple of minutes. I just wanted to mention a little bit this, the Ski Vermont store. You've got a lot of awesome, vintage posters, which I mentioned. I have one in my, uh, TV room. Colors are fabulous. And um, it's really a great place to to visit and maybe to um, purchase a poster or two. Molly, I yeah. can't yeah I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Sorry for all the weather interruptions, but um, it was well, fun to have you on. And I'm gonna maybe I'll see you on Saturday because yes, I appreciate the time. Thanks for having me on. Oh. And yeah, again, sorry about the power challenges, yeah. but uh, glad we got most of it in. Yeah, for sure. And you know, one thing I absolutely loved, I, I went in Boston one time to uh, a ski show that was down there. Um, yeah. What the, the adrenaline and the excitement of being there is unbelievable. I can't explain it enough. I don't ski and I was psyched. It was, people were all just right into the whole thing so anyway think about skiing lots of things to do here in vermont when there's snow coming down thanks to molly mahar and uh, this is pat mcdonald your host for vermont viewpoint on wdev see you on tuesday bye